listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, Northside, we have been in this series, Do What Jesus Did, where we've just been looking at the pathway of Jesus, where he would he would enter into the harvest field and he would share good news, share the gospel and make disciples. And, and he gave commands to, to form churches where we would raise up leaders. And we've just been following through that. And one of the things that's been really exciting for me is to just listen to the stories as they come in every week of people who are just starting to do this, like they're entering into the harvest field, they're praying for people, they're sharing the gospel. And it's exciting just to hear the stories. In fact, a couple of these, I hope you here in coming weeks, but you know, one of them, just the gal in our office who told me one morning she was doing her workout like she normally does there at the gym and decided to make her way across that gym to where an elderly man was so she could just visit with him, offer to pray for him, which she did, which he was very grateful for. They had a great conversation. She said, you know, in the conversation, I I discovered he was a little unhappy with the church and uh, not ours specifically, I I don't think, uh, just with the church. And, but she said, really just unhappy with life, with the world, you know, just everything. And yet in that moment, she said, we had a good conversation. She was able to pray for him. She did not get her whole workout in, but she was able to engage someone and share good news. And I just, I, I celebrate moments like that. I I got a, an email this week from a gentleman who volunteers at the state prison near Fordland and been doing it for like six and a half years. And, and I hope he can share this story more in detail at some point in time, but just a a prisoner who's been there for 38 years, who's talked about the people in and out who've shared about Jesus and he's come to believe he's now a believer in Jesus. And he was talking about how he's excited to get out of prison and be able to share Jesus with others. There's another couple in our church who has uh, gone to the Polk County jail and he's ministered with the men and she's ministered with the women and and there they've shared their testimony as well as the gospel and been able to talk and pray with people, people who say they believe and want Jesus in their life. And I want you to hear those stories because every one of them is just an encouragement that we want to keep doing what Jesus has called us to do. And so for that woman who went across the gym and for that gentleman who volunteers his time for six and a half years at a prison and for this couple that went to Polk County Jail to share their testimony, can we just celebrate right now what God is doing through them and just praise God for the work he's doing. I just praise God for that. I love those simple steps of faith. And just to catch us up to speed with where we are, maybe you were here last week, maybe you weren't. Even if you were, you probably slept since then. It's like when someone comes up to you and says, hey, what'd you do this week? And you're like, "Uh, I'm just trying to remember yesterday, uh, what I do this week. So let me just refresh your memory where we were, because last Sunday we were in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and and Barnabas, Saul was his name at that time, Saul and Barnabas are there in Antioch a church where there had been disciples there and they went to that place so they could disciple and make more. And they were with the church praying, fasting, worshiping when the Holy Spirit prompted that church to send Saul and Barnabas out to make disciples of other places. And so we followed along where they went out in Acts chapter 13, 14 through 50, they went to Pisidian Antioch. And they did that from July to September of 48 AD, just a couple months. Paul preached in the synagogue. The very next week, the whole town came, the text says. 
And then opposition rose. Even though there were people that believed, many believed, opposition from the Jews rose up against him and he had to leave that city. And then we read in Acts 13 where from October 48 to February of 49 AD, he went to Iconium. A number of Jews and Greeks believed in that place, but those who rejected him came after him and he learned of a plot, a plot to stone him from both the Gentiles and the Jews. And so Saul headed out of there. In Acts 14, we read from March to June of AD 49, he was in Lystra. And there in Lystra, some disciples believed in him. But there was such opposition there from some of the Jews who stirred it up that they stoned Paul and left him for dead. The text says the disciples gathered around him. And I think God performed a miracle there at resurrection because he came back and he went back into that city. But he didn't stay. Because of the opposition, he went to Derby. And then from June, in June of 49 AD, we read in Acts chapter 14, he was in Derby and won many disciples. And so if you pay attention to the dates, it's been about a year. It's been about a year and he's made disciples in every single one of those cities. And, and so then we read and, and, you know, you look at this map, which I'll show you on the screen here of Antioch, where he sails all the way down and up to Pisidian Antioch. And it was there where he went to Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and, and Lystra and Derby. And then the text says he went back through those places, strengthening the disciples, but not just strengthening his disciples, actually in those churches that were formed, raising up leaders. And, and, and we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And so what we see in Paul, and we looked at this last week, is this pathway of Jesus that the early church was doing as well, that we want to do as well. It's called the four fields. And in the four fields, you can see in that pathway, they would enter into the harvest field, into places where they didn't know Jesus. They would share the gospel there. They would then make disciples, form churches, raise up leaders to lead in those churches, and they would continue that pathway over and over again. The pattern repeats itself in Paul's second missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 16 to 18. And then on his third journey, Acts chapter 18 through chapter 21, it was about four to six years of that journey. But we read about this occasion when, when Paul goes to Ephesus and there in Ephesus, uh, he's making disciples. And it says there that over that two year period of time that he's there teaching, lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus, uh, that every person heard the gospel in Asia Minor, which at that time was modern-day Turkey. It was over 2 million people. And it says that they heard the word of the Lord. How? By doing this pathway of Jesus. He would make disciples who would then go and make disciples and form churches. And the word of God spread on and on. You know, Jesus said it would be like that. Jesus said that the kingdom of God, it's like yeast in dough. You put a little in and it spreads through the whole batch. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, so small, the smallest of uh, among seeds. But when you plant it, it can grow up into a tree, a shrub that even the birds are perching in its branches. The kingdom of God grows like that. God wants it to grow like that. If we would take the gospel and we would plant it and work it in and sow it in places where it does not ex exist at the present time. And so last week we said we will make disciples. That was our goal last week. In fact, would you repeat that with me? We will make disciples. That was our emphasis last week. But here's our emphasis this week. We want to look to the next pattern, the next pathway of Jesus, which is we will help form churches. Will you say that with me? We will help 
form churches. We want to help form churches because Jesus has called us to do it. Jesus said, I will build my church. He wants us to help form churches. And in Acts chapter 2, which is the beginning of the church, you see in, that, in this text how the church was formed. We can see there what the church is. You can see what the church does. And I want us to look at this together by standing to our feet right now and reading from Acts chapter 2. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as we focus in on what the church is and what the church does. This is what we want to be about. We will help form churches like this. And so in Acts chapter 2, it'll be on your screen here in verses 36 to 47. Peter is speaking. Jesus has died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. He now is about to form his church. Peter's been preaching about Jesus. And we get to this text, Acts 2, beginning of verse 36, where Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. What we read next is what they devoted themselves to. This is what they were about. This is what the church has as its essential elements. In verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Lord, we pray that today you would open our eyes to see the church you want us to be. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to do, what you want us to devote ourselves to, what you want us to engage in, the practices, the elements that are critical for our church to be the kind of church that you want us to be. Lord, to be the disciples you want us to be, to be the church you want us to be, help us to see this right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're seated, I want to show you something. I'm going to share my screen with you on my laptop, and I I want to bring this image up on the screen because the circle that you see on the screen right now, this is representative of the church. This circle is the church. And everything that we bring into the circle that's out there on the side to the right, everything we're going to bring into the circle are the elements, the ingredients that are critical for a healthy, thriving church to make us healthy, thriving disciples. And so I'm going to point out 
these things that are to become a part of our church, all of these things from Acts chapter 2, and then a few of them will bleed into Acts chapter 4, that ought to be present here. This is what it looks like if we want to be an Acts 2 church. This is what it looks like if we want to be a part of God's kingdom and helping share it with others. And so what I want to show you right now is, first of all, what we see in the text that we read is when Peter said, first of all, you have to believe. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is Lord. He is God. He's Christ the Messiah. You have to believe this. You have to entrust your life to this. Believe he is who he says he is, and you have to repent. And that's what this arrow at the top represents. Believing and repenting. That you believe Jesus is who he said he is, and you're going to entrust your life to him, and and you're going to repent of your sins. That means turn from going your way, and you're going to go towards Christ, his way. The early church did this, and they didn't just do it one time. They consistently believed and repented. And the question I want to ask you is, have you done this? Have you believed? Have you repented and turned back to Christ? Can you say that that has been brought into the circle of your life? Is that a practice that's in the circle of our church? It must be if you want to be this kind of church. That was in verses 36 to 38. And then we read this in chapter 2, verse 38. We read that we also must be baptized. We see this was part of the practice of that early church. Believe, repent, be baptized. Peter said, everyone who does, everyone should be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you and all who would respond to God by faith. Romans chapter 6 says when we're baptized into Christ, we're raised to new life. We're made new in Jesus. This is what the early church church did. And you have to ask the question, have you been baptized? Is that something you've brought into the circle of, of your life? Into the church? Have you been baptized into Christ? And if not, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from doing it? There should be a sense of urgency for you because God does something in this moment where you are baptized into Jesus. I was thrilled this week when that happened on Tuesday of this week, because on Tuesday of this week, we, we'd gotten a phone call on Monday and it was from Harry and Tamara Manzella, and they were telling us about their daughter-in-law, Bo, who was wanting to be baptized. She had grown up in Thailand. Buddhist is the family and the culture that she was raised up in, though as a child she did hear about Jesus. And I think she even saw a video of him on the cross that was moving to her emotionally. But she has since then come to believe in Jesus. She's married to their son, Jeff. And they were in Texas for a period of time, going to a church for almost a year there in Texas. We were able to, uh, Ed and our church was able to help get her a Thai Bible so she could start reading the Bible herself in Thai, which would be her native tongue and language. And she's been growing in faith. And he's about to get, um, uh, what do you call it? He's in the military, so he's about to get deployed. I was about to say deported. Uh, sorry, not the right word. Deployed is the word I was looking for. And so she wanted right now to be baptized into Christ before they left, before they went anywhere else. So on Tuesday of this week, we gathered together and we went through every scripture scripture about baptism and what the Bible says. And she was able to be baptized right here in this moment, giving her life to the Lord. You now have another sister in Christ who's put her faith in Jesus. So praise God for both. (laughs) Praising God for that. And just as I talked with her, she was just saying, I believe, I, I believe this. And there was a sense of urgency. I'm ready to do this. Have you been baptized into Christ? Is that in the circle 
of your life? And if not, what's keeping that from happening for you? The early church lived with a sense of urgency to be baptized into Christ, oftentimes at the same hour of the night as they gave their heart to the Lord. There's something else we see in Acts 2 and verse 42. They also devoted themselves to the word, to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the word, the apostles' teaching. They were teaching what Jesus commanded. And we have the word of God, but they're teaching in it today that we can devote ourselves to to, to the practice of, of reading it, of hearing it, and obeying it. Are you devoted to the word of God? Is that a practice you're doing so that it's in the circle of your life every single day where you're hearing from God and you're obeying God? Because if it's not, it ought to be there. It was for the early church. They were devoted to it. That's why we're going through this year of Bible engagement right now. And maybe for whatever reason you've gotten out of it or gotten out of the habit, this would be a great time right now to pick up the book of Romans, which is where we are right now in our Bible engagement. We got, we got cards at, at, at Next Steps right out here in the central lobby for you to pick up. It's on our website. You can pick up right where we are and start reading and engaging God's word, taking in your life. It will change you. It's how you know him. I was encouraged and moved several weeks ago. In fact, I even told her this when Kendra made a post in social media about how she was spending time in God's word, especially after the death of her husband, losing her husband in August and how difficult it's been. She said in this post, this was the picture of it. It says there, she said, I've spent a lot of time in the gospels with Jesus in the last month, but I have such a desire to know God and understand him better. So Mondays and Wednesdays, I've been fasting during my lunch and I've started over in the Old Testament. She said, Michael and I were reading the Old Testament with our church this past winter, but we fell out of our groove. I remember that being, that being such a time of growth for us, though, and I need growth. Staying stagnant just is not an option for me. I won't make it through that way. I have to know the one who holds Michael, the one that holds me and my girls. I have to know him better than I know anyone, and I know this book is where it starts. So true. Are you devoted? Are you devoted to hearing and reading God's word? So that it is in you. So it transforms you. So you know him. So you know him better. There's no better time than to say, I need to make sure that's in the circle of my life. It's in, it, that's got to be a priority in our church because it was in the Acts 2 church. And there's something else that this church was devoted to. This church was devoted to gathering together, and this church was devoted to fellowshipping with one another. They gathered consistently, regularly, and they fellowshiped deeply. This was a part of the early church. And they would get together. Where? Where would they get together? Where did it happen? Well, in Acts 2 and Acts 5, chapter 17, chapter 18, they would meet in their home. And we also see where they would gather in temple courts. There for a while, they were daily in the temple courts. And they would go house to house. And they would go in their homes. And that's where the church gathered. They didn't have a building like this. They just met in homes. In Acts 19, you see Paul in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He's given lectures. People are showing up. But through that, he's, it's more than lectures. <laughs> he's teaching and making disciples. It, it may have been a lecture hall, but that wasn't the style of Paul. And it was there that he invested in people. And it was in that place that the gospel went to over 2 million people in Turkey. So you know, in modern day Turkey. So you know that he was making disciples who left and were making 
disciples. They made a priority to gather together. In Acts 20, they met publicly and house to house. In Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, Philippians 1, they met in homes. Paul would often say, greet the church that meets in the home of, and they would give someone's name. There was an advantage to meeting in homes. It multiplied quickly that way. There's also an advantage to meeting in homes when you begin to come under more and more scrutiny. I think we're going to find even here in the United States of America as we continue to become more and more marginalized and criminalized and vilified and persecuted, homes are going to have an advantage for us. We need to be prepared to meet in homes. That's how the early church did it. And they multiplied like crazy. Where do you meet? Well, anywhere you, you can gather. It can be in a large building like this. It can be in a home. It can be in a lecture hall. It can be in a school. It can be in a place of business or residence. It can be anywhere. But they would gather And why would they gather? Well, for the reasons that I'm unfolding in this study, certainly that's why. But they also gathered so they could spur one another on, encourage one another. They could hold each other accountable. That's why they met. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Man, we need encouragement. That's why we gather. That's why we meet together. And so make it a priority. It was a priority then, not just to gather, but to fellowship with one another deeply, relationally, getting to know one another closely. That's what the early church did. And then here was something else that that early church was devoted to. And they were committed to this. And it was the Lord's Supper. They were committed to coming together to take communion with one another. The Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread in their home. They were committed to this. In fact, for the first 1,500 years of the church, communion was central to their gatherings. They would come together, and in that moment, they would unite with Jesus, identify with Christ as they participated in the body and the blood of Jesus. And it actually was even put centrally centrally in the rooms in which they would meet. For 1,500 years in the church, communion was a central part of their gatherings. When they would come together, it even had a central place in the room. But that kind of changed 500 years ago. Francis Chan talks about this. When a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli moved communion. In fact, there in the churches at the time, it was in the central place in the room. And he moved it off to the side, and then he put his pulpit there. So he could preach. And maybe what we've noticed over those 500 years is communion kind of got pushed off to the side. Jesus, the body and the blood, central to everything that we're about, coming together under his forgiveness and justification. And in some churches, communion is not even remembered regularly. Hardly at all. Here and there. A special service. Not consistently. It's not highlighted. And yet it was communion. That was central to the church, central to the room. It was that which unified us around the body and the blood of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says, It's not the cup of thanksgiving of which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one loaf. We who are many, we're one body. And we all partake of the one loaf. We're one. Communion testifies to our oneness. The bride of Christ, his church, is one in him. 
And it's a declaration of our union with him. It's a declaration of our union with one another. It's participating in his oneness. Something special happens in that moment as you commune, as you fellowship, as you have intimacy with Jesus Christ. It's a declaration of that. And when it's, when there's not unity, when there's not oneness being demonstrated, we're in trouble. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthian Christians there in that church. And the reason was because the rich people were gathering early and they were bringing their food, their meal together, and they were having wine to the point where they were getting drunk. And the poor people would come in late and they were hungry, they were starving, they were in need. No one was caring for one another, considering one another. It was embarrassing to them. There was pride over here. And Paul comes into this church, he's like, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're partaking in. He was rebuking them. There was not a sense of oneness and unity in Jesus at all. In fact, he goes on to say this, listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 30. So then, Paul said, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such harsh judgment. Paul says some of you are sick and some of you have died because this is not the Lord's Supper you're participating in. There is division among you. Oh my goodness. It's not often someone stands up and gives you a warning in your communion meditation. Please partake of this, but if you do, you might die. You might get really sick. Because if you're not coming to this in oneness with Christ, remembering him, and if you're not coming to this in a spirit of oneness with one another, loving and caring for each other, in a unified spirit, you may be drinking judgment upon yourself. Because this is about Jesus He's reconciled us with God and with one another. It is both of those things. It's how important it is. And we don't take it lightly. That's why in the Old Testament, Moses didn't tell people, oh yeah, go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. It's really cool in there. You'll love it. Yeah, just yeah, go, go on in there. No, he didn't say that. He said that is the Holy of Holies, a sacred place. And because of that, only the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies. Only he did that. And it was under God's command and rules. Look, communion is a sacred thing. We do this in remembrance of Jesus, uniting with him in such a special way when we partake of this. It's one of those things where you ought to be just going, I can't believe that I get to commune with the almighty God, with Jesus in this moment, taking in, receiving his body and his blood, being one with him as he's justified me and freed me and forgiven me. It ought to have a moment of awe for you because it did for the early church. They would commune with the Almighty God. They knew there was fellowship between them and God and them with one another. And so every person that trusted Jesus for salvation and put their faith in Him, they would gather together to remember the sacrifice that saved them and that they could not save themselves. It's one of the reasons why here at Northside, we do this weekly, every week. We're making Jesus central because He is. Some people say, why do you do it every single week? Because we believe the early church did. Texts like Acts 20, verse 7, that says, On the first day of the week, we came together. Why? To break bread. 
They did that on the first day of the week. In that text I was reading to you in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's rebuking them, because he says, when you come together, this is not the Lord's Supper you're doing. It's like, well, when did they come together to do that? Well, by the time you get to chapter 16, you read there in 1 Corinthians 16 too, it was on the first day of the week. That's when they would come together. In fact, that's the day they came to worship. That's the day they took communion. It was the day they took an offering. That's why we gather once a week on the day that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And we gather as church because the early church did. And when they came together, they took communion. And they did that for 1,500 years. It was central in, in the life of the church. And it must be central for us. That is why right now today we want to take a moment to do this. To take a moment to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Take a moment to cast our thoughts to him and what he's done for us. In fact, uh, if you've got your communion supplies, I'd like for you to take those out at this time. And if you do not have those supplies, if you came in today and you didn't even know to grab them, uh, there's some in this room. It's at the back of the room, back over here and here. There's some tables in the very back of the room that have some communion supplies on them by the lamps there as well. Just encourage you to go ahead and grab some supplies there. And as you grab those communion supplies that we can share in together, if you're watching at home, this is a time to do it as well. This is a moment where we, we see that we are a part of Jesus and he's a part of us. Communion is a declaration of our complete oneness with him. In fact, it's a moment of expressing our love for him, the unity we share with him, our trust in him, our belief in him. Jesus said, whoever eats my body, drinks my blood. That's, it's in Christ that we have life. We have forgiveness of our sins. We're justified. We're dependent on him. It's a, it's a moment where you realize that we are dependent on him. In a sense, we, we are what we eat, Right? It's kind of true in communion as well. In this moment, we're, we're ingesting him. We're receiving him. It's the sacrifice of Jesus in our life of cleansing, renewal, and power that we are remembering. And we're actually fellowshipping with him in this moment in an intimate way. In fact, something mysterious even happens in this moment as we're close to Jesus. And, and as we do this together, it's a declaration of our oneness that we are one in Christ. One is a body of Christ. And I, as we talk about that body, I want you just to right now just take the bread that you have there that you received. I want you just to take the bread and hold it in your hand now. Because Jesus said, Jesus said, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul passes on what he received from the Lord. He says, what I, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He took bread and he broke it. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the body of Jesus, this bread, because his body was broken for us. Let's eat and receive this together.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Jesus poured out for you as the church has been doing for over 2,000 years. Let's receive this blood. Let's receive this drink in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus, just as you gave thanks, we give thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing your life. God came here. Jesus, you lived a sinless life. You paid the price for our sins on that cross. You died. You rose again. You ascended into heaven. You were given all authority and power and rule and reign. And yet you commune with us. You fellowship with us. You are intimately close with us. You come in and dwell in us. And as we've ingested you in this moment, we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your blood, for your body. Lord, we're nothing apart from you. So, Lord, we thank you for your gift of life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the things is you reflect on this a little bit. I want you to think about uh, Francis Chan asked this question. He said, imagine, he just told the story. He said, imagine that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was sitting right here on this front row. She was sitting right there. Imagine that. Mary with the Savior of the world in her womb. Mary with Emmanuel, God with us, in her womb. Imagine that. Mary... uh, A woman, but the Savior of the world, creator God, Jesus, in her womb, sitting right here. He said, how would you treat her? How would you speak to her? To what degree would you honor her? Would you be careful around her carrying the Son of God in her womb? And he said, do you believe that the Holy Spirit's in me? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, for every person who believes, repents, and baptized on the day of Pentecost, there, Acts 2, is dwelling in you? If so, if God is in you, how should we treat one another? How should we take care of each other? How should we honor one another? Should it not be in the same way? God resides in us, and how we treat each other should be the way we would treat Mary if she were sitting right here with the Son of God in her womb. This is why we are one body. It reminds us that our fellowship with each other is important and it matters. Christ is in us. 
And we should remember that every single time we take of communion together. So let's put that picture back up on the screen. So we're taking communion together. And, and uh, these images just remind you, you know, we believe and re- we repent at the top. And then we're baptized into Christ. And we're devoted to Scripture. And, and we gather we gather consistently and, and in deep fellowship. And then we, we take communion together. This is something that a church does together. And then there's this other thing that Acts chapter 2 was talking about in verse 42. When it says that the church was devoted to praying. The church was devoted to prayer. This is an early church. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And they knew the sense of urgency of prayer. They did it. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples, pray like this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Ask God to glorify himself in you and through your life and in this world. Give us today our daily bread. Pray that he would provide for your needs. Forgive us our debts. You confess your sins to him and you forgive others in the same way he forgives you. Deliver us from the evil one. Ask for his help to overcome temptation and to be delivered from temptation. In fact, Jesus said, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his field. Pray persistently, not hypocritically like the religious leaders. He tells you to abide in prayer. That if you remain in my words, my words remain in you, and you ask anything in prayer, it will be given to you. Jesus wants us to do extraordinary prayer. That's just extraordinary. Whatever your prayer is, life is like right now, just do something extra and pray to him. The early church was so devoted to prayer, and that's why the early church multiplied. It's why the Holy Spirit moved powerfully. They were in prayer. Is prayer, here's the question, Is prayer in your circle? Is it in the circle of your life? Is it in the circle of our church? Prayer must be. Here's the next thing that should be in our church. It's in verse 45 of Acts chapter 2. The early church, the early church would give. They would give to the Lord. They gave to anyone who had need. They gave of their treasures. They gave of their finances. They gave of their resources. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that they were of one mind. They shared everything that they had. Some even sold houses and land, and they put the money at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed to those in need. People cared for one another. They gave to one another. They served one another. Generosity was a characteristic of that early church in 2 Corinthians 9. They gave generously and willingly, not reluctantly. And God was able to bless them abundantly so they could give even more. They took care of each other. And that kind of giving resulted in thanksgiving among the believers and the unbelievers. They were giving thanks to God for the generosity of these people. That's what the early church did in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. We want to give like they gave. We want to give to gospel advancement. We want to give needs, give to needs in our church and in our community. And then we want to go and spontaneously meet the needs of people when we learn that there's a need. And and when we do that, it's a tangible way in which God's kingdom comes to people where they see his love in their life and it meets them in a powerful way. The church is to be a generous place. We can't outgive God. So we give to God and we give to him and we give to others generously. It's a characteristic of the church. It's important. And then we see something else in this early church. It's in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. And what we see in this text here is that they devoted themselves to worship through perseverance. They praised 
God, it says in this text, they praised God with glad and sincere hearts, enjoying the favor of all the people because worship was a priority in the church. And they worshiped God in multiple ways. One of those ways was through singing. Like when you get to Ephesians chapter 5, and it says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. We sing together. In Colossians 3, it says, Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Our worship should actually teach us. It informs our faith. Our worship, our prayers to God, singing to God with gratitude. And he says, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We worship. We sing. This is a part of our worship. But this is also what worship looks like in the church. James chapter 1 says, worship through trials by considering it pure joy when you go through them. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So even in our trials, we're worshiping God through the hard stuff that we're going through. We're a church that worships with perseverance in the good times and the bad times. When life is good and when life is not so good. We bless his holy name. Even when we're going through hardship and suffering and persecution, we persevere with worship. And then there's something else that we devote ourselves to. It's loving people enough that we make disciples. We make disciples. We love people into the kingdom. We make disciples. In verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then people were going out and they were planting seeds and entering the harvest field. And because so many people were doing it, every day people were coming to faith in the Lord. Their numbers were growing every single day. Disciples were being made and they were obeying what Jesus said to do in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. They were doing what he said to do. Churches became places where they taught and they trained and they made more disciples and sent them out to go make more disciples and form more churches and raise up leaders so they could enter the harvest field and share the gospel and make more disciples and make more churches. It was reproducing. We want to be a church like that. The loves people where love and unity is expressed, like in Acts 4.32, where it said all the believers were one in heart and mind. You know what that means? It doesn't mean we think about every little thing exactly alike. Just, I mean, this afternoon, many of you are going to be cheering for different teams, opposing teams. In fact, if you were in the same room, you'd be cheering against one another. But when you're one in heart and mind, it means you're unified in Christ and making disciples and seeing the church grow. It's what we're about. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength means with everything you've got. It'll take everything you've got and more to love him. And he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You love people too. You love Jesus by obeying him. You love others by sharing with them what God has done and caring for them and meeting needs. So we make disciples by loving them into the kingdom. And then this last thing, what we see in the early church is they would raise up leaders. They would raise up leaders. They would raise up leaders to lead to more people. And as you look at this graph, I want you to start thinking about it. Because I mean, when they, when they raised up leaders, they, in Acts 6, they were raising up deacons, ministry team leaders. And by Acts 14, they're appointing elders in churches to help lead those churches. They, they were forming leaders. People were started using their gifts and, and expressing those gifts for the kingdom. And when you look at that graph, what you begin to see is, wait, this is what a church is supposed to look like. This is what your life is supposed to look like. Are all of these things inside the circle of this church and of you? Are you believing and repenting? Have you been baptized into Christ? Is the word of God in your heart and mind every day? Are you gathering consistently, regularly, 
deepening fellowship with each other? Are you participating in communion, at least weekly, like we do, making that a central focus of your church? Are you praying? Are you praying to God and abiding in Jesus daily? Are you giving to needs and giving to the Lord first, making sure he is the first of your income? Are you worshiping and praising God with everything you have in the good and the bad, even through trials and tribulations? Are you making disciples and loving people into the kingdom of God? Are you a part of disciple making? And are you raising up leaders? Are you helping new leaders be raised up so that we can see more people come to faith and churches formed? This is what Jesus called his church to do in the early church and it was thriving. And Is this you? Is this us? Because this is what we want it to be. I just know there's a lot of Christians that are bored and it's because they're not actively involved in this. They're on the sideline. They're observing. They're watching. They come occasionally and hope it entertains or interests them and they're gone. But they're not experiencing the power of God. They have a form of godliness, but they're denying its power because they're not actually abiding in Jesus and going into harvest where they have to be dependent on him and stretching themselves. And this is one of those things we're going to start stretching our church to do, to go. And I just want you to know, if we do this, there is, there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? I mean, surely you know that. Like, churches are messy. Why are churches messy? Because people are messy. Because people are broken and the church is people. And before you take on that attitude that says, wait, that stuff shouldn't happen in the church. You know, this is church. Um, Have you read the New Testament? Because, I mean, when you look at Revelation, seven churches are addressed there. Only two seem to have health. You look at the churches that that Paul started and other people started these churches. And what what does Paul spend most of his time doing? Correcting them? Rebuking them? Like the Corinthian church, for example? The book of 1 Corinthians. If you open up that book, it shows there was divisions over leadership, sexual immorality, lawsuits, marriage intimacy struggles, food offered to idols, the Lord's Supper was being misused, there were cultural practices in worship, there was pride and misunderstanding as it related to spiritual gifts, and people wanted the the flashy gifts, and Paul was telling him, no, these other gifts are as important, if not more so. You just look at the books that he's writing. That's just one book out of the 13, 14 churches that we know for a fact he started, but we know he started many more than that, and other people started more than that. And Tim Cooper, who's serving in Southern California, said, we make a mistake thinking if we just read the Bible and people obey it, it it will result in a disciple-making movement and there won't be any mess. There won't be any headache. It'll all just be smooth and perfect and nice. No. It gets messy. And that doesn't mean the method's wrong or the message is wrong or any of that stuff. It's messy because when you commit to these practices like the earlier church did, you're brought into the bride of Christ that Jesus is making holy. We're made holy and we're being made holy. But the point is in church, at the bride of Christ, we're repenting, we're believing, and we're growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. It's happening. But every time someone else comes into the church, they're not mature yet. They're not a mature believer yet. So it should be messy. And if it's not, we probably got a problem. We're probably not growing. We're probably not making disciples. We want to be a church that forms churches and makes disciples. And that's my prayer. So if you would just stand to your feet right now, I want this to be the prayer of your heart. And if you need to make a decision today to believe or to repent or to be baptized or take a next step, I want to meet you at Decision Point down here. I'd love to talk with you today. Why would you wait? 
bring it into the circle. If you're watching online, just go to our website. You can begin a conversation with us there with the information on your screen. And of course, as you leave today, there's boxes on the walls as you leave at the exits. And that's a way for you to give to the Lord. It's a way to express your love for him and kingdom cause and purpose. And so, Lord, I pray right now, the Lord, we will obey you. We would be who you've called us to be. We would do what you've told us to do. We would be the church that you desire us to be. And everything that we've talked about today, we would move it inside the circle of this church. And the way we do that is by moving it inside the circle of our lives. We are the church. We are your people. Lord, make us like you and make us holy and make us effective and make us make disciples. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.